Well, let's go to God once more in prayer before we go to his word. Let's pray. Father, again, we ask for your help. Oh God, may your spirit work now through your word to help us see our need of Jesus, our hope in Jesus, that we might live for your glory. We pray this in his name. Amen. Three weeks ago, a young college student in Nigeria, Deborah Yakubu, texted her friends, Jesus is the greatest. He helped me finish my exams. A group of Muslims heard about it, formed a mob, dragged her outside, and stoned her to death. They burned up her body down to ashes, all for blasphemy. If God cares about what happened there, what must he do about it? The government of Nigeria has at least condemned the killings. They've promised an investigation, but this isn't anything new in Nigeria. Bridget Agbahamin was beheaded in Kano, Nigeria for the same crime. Eunice Elisha was killed for proclaiming Christ in Kuba, and nothing was done about it. No one was punished. That's not a good and just government. So in a world full of evil, what must God ultimately do in order to be a good and just God? And can we be confident that he'll do that? And if so, is that good news or bad news for sinners like you and me? Well, if you're visiting with us for the first time this week, we're glad you're here. Please come back. It's, it's not always like this. But it is true that our commitment here is to preach through the Bible and to get a real picture of our world, ourselves, and God. And to get that accurate picture, we need to hear from every part of His Word, not just the parts that we like to hear, but the hard ones as well. Now, ultimately, the message of Nahum is good news. But it's good news for those that trust God. And it's meant to be a comfort to them in hard times. But that's what the word Nahum means. It's comfort. This is a book of consolation, but not for everyone. And to see this, please turn with me to Nahum chapter 2. Nahum chapter 2, if you're using one of the church Bibles, you can find that on page 829. 829, and if you're new to the Bible, the large bold numbers are the chapters, the smaller numbers are the verses. Nahum chapter 2. Now, context is always important, and it's really important in the book of Nahum. So let's back up again as we did last week and review. After our first parents rebelled against God, The whole world fell under the curse of sin and death. But God made a promise to Abraham that through one of his descendants, the whole world would know his blessing. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob, through Jacob, came the nation of Israel. And God made another promise to Israel's king, David, that one of his descendants would rule over God's people forever in peace and blessing. But after David's son Solomon dies, the nation of Israel splits into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. And Israel rebels against God in really horrible and evil ways. And so God graciously warns them many times through the prophets that if they don't repent, he'll raise up a ruthless nation as an instrument of his justice. The Assyrians. And in 722 BC, 
the Assyrians conquer Israel. Many of them are killed. Many are sent into exile. Now, Judah in the south is watching all of this happen and more. Because Assyria was a bloodthirsty, powerful nation that went about conquering nations and kingdoms all the way down the coast, even to Egypt. And everywhere they went, there was absolute chaos and carnage. Upon conquering, they'd burn the city and then leave the streets covered with dismembered bodies so that all other nations could see their might and fear them. Now, being in the hills, Judah was less prioritized. And so, as a nation, it's, it's like they have a bird's eye view of the, of the rising floodwaters of Assyrian dominance. And over time, those waters began to reach them. More than 50 cities in Judah were destroyed, including the little city of Lachish, which guarded Jerusalem to the north. So they're seeing and hearing of the worst kind of human torture, and they're next. That's the context in which Nahum prophesies. And out of his mouth comes this central theological statement of the book. In chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is fierce in wrath. The Lord takes vengeance against his foes. He is furious with his enemies. Now, if that doesn't sound right to you, just keep listening to this sermon, but definitely go back and listen to last week's sermon. But in short, it's hard for us to think about God this way because we ourselves are sinners and we have not seen his holiness. And because we're sinners, we think of jealousy as a bad thing. You know, our desires for what we don't have are, are usually wrong. But whatever God's jealous about is rightfully his. And his zeal for that thing is good. Like a wife who wants her husband to be faithful to her. That's not wrong. That's good. Well, God is jealous for his glory. And his glory is wrapped up in these gracious promises that he's made to his people who trust him. Nahum preaches to God's people at a time of great distress. Under the threat of evil. And he tells us what it looks like for God to care. Okay? The book of Nahum, everything that we're going to read about, is aimed at Israel's enemies. It's for his people, but it's about the enemies. And Nahum comforts them with a message that says, God cares about every evil done in this world. So he brings vengeance. He does something about it. And that strengthens his people's resolve to trust him. And that's the encouragement for us today. Don't fear your enemies when God is for you and against them. That's the main encouragement for us to come away from, come away with from here today. Don't fear your enemies when God is for you and against them. And we see three reasons in the text for this. First, the hope of God's vengeance. In verses 1 and 2. The hope of God's vengeance. Second, the work of God's vengeance. The work of God's vengeance. That's in verses 3 through 10. And third, the end of God's vengeance. In verses 11 through 13. The end of God's vengeance. So first, the hope of God's vengeance. Look at verse 1. One who scatters is coming up against you. Man the fortifications, watch the road, brace yourself, summon all your strength. For the Lord will restore the majesty of Jacob. Yes, the majesty of Israel. The ravages, ravagers have ravaged them and ruined their vine branches. 
Based on chapter 1, these verses are clearly aimed at Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. And Assyria's M.O., I, I, I alluded to earlier, they would go in and they would destroy a city and then take the survivors and scatter them across the empire so that there was no chance of those same people organizing a rebellion in their former city. Assyria would scatter. But here God says, one who scatters is coming against you. Assyria is about to reap what they've sown. Their own evil is being turned back against them. And it's a little vague as to who is scattering in verse 1. Is it God or another nation? And the answer is both. Nahum's about to describe a literal army here in chapter 2. And we know from history that the Babylonians with the Medes and some others come in and they destroy Nineveh. And yet this is God's word and he's proclaiming in advance that this is going to happen. And this chapter ends with God saying, I am against you. It is God raising up another nation to carry out his justice against Assyria. For all the evil that they have done. And there is nothing that they can do about it. The rest of verse 1 is full of irony. This is a taunt. Man the fortifications. Watch the, the road. Brace yourself. Summon all your strength. And from an earthly standpoint, that's a lot. Uh, The Assyrian Empire is huge. No other kingdom compared to it in wealth and might. Nineveh itself was a formidable fortress. It was surrounded by two giant walls, large enough that you could race chariots around the tops of those walls. Uh, The king's palace was said to have no rival, much like his army. So they seemingly had no one to fear. But based on verse 2 and the rest of the book, this call to get ready is totally futile. Nineveh's being told to stand on the train tracks and stop the incoming train of God's wrath. What can any weapon do against God? What's plain in Nahum is that if Nineveh goes down, God's people can know that there's no kingdom or person that will ever avoid the wrath of God. God's judgment against his enemies will come and succeed. And if you've ever been a victim of injustice, that's the kind of thing you need to know to begin your healing and to keep living in this world with some hope. God judges evil. He does not turn a blind eye to it. He sees He sees what's happened to you. He sees what happens to those you love. And he's doing something about it. He comes against his enemies. And in this case, his enemies are the enemies of his people. And that means the end of oppression and the hope of restoration. Verse 2. For the Lord will restore the majesty of Jacob. Yes, the majesty of Israel. Though ravagers have ravaged them and ruined their vine branches. So as certain as Nineveh's destruction is, that's how certain Israel's restoration is. In fact, verse 2 reveals the love of God for his people in the judgment of their enemies. Judgment is coming in verse 1, for the Lord will restore the majesty of Israel. Why? Because he's made promises to them. His glory is wrapped up in their restoration. And so if you're on the hills of Judah, and and you know the character of God and his promises, what does this message from Nahum do for you? Imagine you're there with the the rising floodwaters of Assyria at your doorstep. And Nahum proclaims this. Doesn't it fortify your hope? That's what comfort is. It fortifies, it strengthens your hope. And so doesn't it make you want to live for him another day? And what if not long after Nahum preaches this, you actually hear the news that Nineveh has fallen? What 
does that do for your life going forward in every future trial as one of God's people, as someone who trusts in him? Church, you want to answer that question because that should be the life of the Christian. This word is ultimately for us. Judah did get to see Nineveh's downfall. But Judah will also end up rebelling against God and going into exile themselves. Now, God does bring them back into the land, restored, but they're not exactly free. And even by the time we come to the, the time period of Jesus, Israel is still under the rule of a foreign power. So, did God fail to bring about the restoration of Israel that he promises here in verse 2? Not at all. (laughs) No. We saw this in, in our study of Romans, right? Ultimately, the majesty of Israel refers to the completion of God's promises to Abraham and all those who share in the faith of Abraham. The whole world is blessed through him. God's people will be in God's place enjoying God's blessing, namely his presence with them. God is for us in the person of Jesus who defeated the enemies that we can't defeat. And our enemies are much bigger than Assyria. You know, armies can be matched pound for pound. But the power of sin and Satan is power that we can't fight ourselves. We can't do that because we are sinners. Meaning we are, by nature, spiritual rebels. And that nature can't be undone by anything in us. And God can't be perfectly holy and perfectly righteous and perfectly just and turn a blind eye towards any sin, great or small. And so for that reason, the Bible says that we all deserve death. But to restore the relationship that God had with people in the beginning and to receive glory from us again, God and his love came in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus came not to judge us, but to be judged himself. Jesus lived a, a, lived a perfect life on our behalf, and on the cross he died under God's wrath, suffering his judgment. The judgment of the Father in full for all those who trust in him. And because God raised Jesus from the dead, we share in the victory. We can see sin defeated. We can see at the cross, Satan disarmed. Death defeated itself. We can look and see that happen. And so we can hear these words from Nahum and the rest of the Bible with much more assurance. If God is for us, who can be against us? He didn't even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. Romans 8.31 The Apostle Paul bursts with praise even as he faces the threat of death himself. Even as he has been persecuted and will be persecuted, he proclaims we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. Not even the power of death threatens us because in Christ God is for us and when we meet him, he will welcome us into his presence. That hope is the reason that we don't cower under the threats of any earthly power and compromise faithfulness to Jesus. If we really trust in the Lord, then an angry mob controlling corporate America doesn't change what we believe. We're willing to lose our jobs for Christ because it's no real threat to us. We're willing to talk about Jesus with our friends and family, even if they will turn on us. Christians can leave everything and move to dangerous places to proclaim the good news of salvation and be wise for it. The missionary Jim Elliott died preaching the gospel to the most violent tribe in the Ecuador jungle. But he did so with joy and boldness, saying that he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's why Jesus tells us not to fear those who can kill the body and after that do nothing more. 
No, Jesus says, fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Because God isn't like the unjust government that turns a blind eye towards evil. He does something about it. Which brings us to the second reason we should, shouldn't fear our enemies when God is for us and against them. It's because of the work of God's vengeance. The work of God's vengeance. Look at, look at verse 3. The shields of his warriors are dyed red. The valiant men are dressed in scarlet. The fittings of the chariot flash like fire on the day of its battle preparations, and the spears are brandished. The chariots dash madly through the streets. They rush round into plazas. They look like torches. They dart back and forth like lightning. He gives orders to his officers. They stumble as they advance. They race to its wall. The protective shield is set in place. The river gates are opened and the palace erodes away. Beauty is stripped. She is carried away. Her ladies in waiting moan like the sound of doves and beat their breasts. Nineveh has been like a pool of water from her first days, but they are fleeing. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end to the treasure, abundance of every precious thing. Desolation, decimation, devastation. Hearts melt, knees tremble, insides churn, every face grows pale. Nineveh has lived by the sword, but now they'll die by the sword. The army in verse 3 evokes images of blood from battle. The chaos that Assyria inflicted on God's people is now crashing down on them in the chariots that are darting back and forth like lightning. You can just feel the, the madness of the attack in the text. Even the river in verse 6, which ran through the city, works against them. Historical records confirm that the river flooded and eroded away those huge mud-brick walls that the Babylonians so trusted in and were swept away by it. Verse 7 is a, a devastating picture of great loss. Women beat their chest in anguish and mourn. In verse 8, Nineveh is described as the place where everybody wanted to be, like a pool of water. It just collected people and wealth all in one place. So like the world today, in the great cities of the world, Nineveh is the place where everybody believes they'll find life. You came to Nineveh to make it in this world, and you plan to stay. But on this day, this day of judgment, the city is leaking. People are fleeing under the judgment of God and leaving everything they lived for behind. That's a powerful picture for us. Nineveh is the most wealthy, powerful, secure city on earth at this time. But all that they were and all that they had did nothing for them on the day of judgment. And we can put our hope in many things for security and happiness. We might spend our whole lives accumulating wealth, reaching a position of status, setting up a vault of security over our lives with good health, a good neighborhood, a good network of people, and whatever else we can think of to secure happiness. But a single diagnosis or car accident, or random act of violence can change all of that in a single day. How much more the judgment of God? If God is your refuge, then life isn't ruled by a fear of losing these things. They still might be scary and some of the things I mentioned, wisely avoided. But losing them can't threaten the joy of God's people. Jesus said that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so the question is, if we want hope from this passage, is where is your treasure? Where is your trust? 
Thinking about what you love in life might, might help you answer that question, but so will your fears. If your heart is more in this world, then you, you, you can fear what people might say or think about you or do to you because that will affect your experience in this world. Or you might fear governments and, and, and those who get elected or whoever's in power because they have the authority to change your experience in this world. Or maybe it's fear of disease or recession. Because poor health or wealth means a loss of pleasurable experiences and purchases in this world. Now, I'm not saying that those things don't matter. There's a right way to be concerned about all those things. But they shouldn't be a threat to true joy or life. I love what was said about Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan. They said his, his happiness was out of the reach of his enemies. His treasure was in heaven. Not in the things that Nineveh supposedly promised. Worldly comforts and pleasures won't do anything for anyone on the day of God's wrath. Which is why God's judgment is so devastating here. I mean, verse 10 is a powerful description of despair. Desolation, decimation, devastation. Hearts melt, knees trembles, insides churn, Every face grows pale. This is a scream expressing the absolute terror at the sight of Nineveh's destruction. The sight of judgment produces a physiological reaction, which is the same reaction that Assyria sought from those they conquered. They would impale people with stakes and line the city with beheaded bodies. And so again, we see the doctrine of retribution here. God's returning their evil on their own heads. On Judgment Day, people get what they deserve. And this is a preview of judgment against all sin when Jesus returns. What does rebellion against an infinitely holy, righteous, good, and loving God deserve? What must he do about it? Look at Nineveh. Jesus says that on this final day, people will cry for the mountains to fall on them and rocks to crush them. Think about that. Whatever that day will reveal, whatever sight that we see when Jesus returns, people will look for death and not find it. It would be better to them based on seeing the fall Seeing judgment, it would be better for them to be crushed by rocks than to face the wrath of God. Now, I understand why this might not seem like a great look for God in Scripture. Why would anyone want a relationship with this God? This looks so cold and so hard-hearted from one vantage point. But from another vantage point, like if you're a victim of a serious cruelty and you've been stripped of of people you love by their wicked brutality, then God's wrath doesn't just look like divine justice. His wrath also looks like an overflow of holy love. Who would let anyone verbally, emotionally, or physically hurt someone they love and not seek justice for them? In love, God the Spirit and God the Son can't stand for the Father's glory to be offended. The Father and the Spirit can't bear for the Son to be dishonored. The Father and the Son won't tolerate the rejection of the Spirit. These are evils that in love can't be overlooked. And that's good news for those who seek refuge in Him. Because the Father, Son, and Spirit have tied the redemption of His people to their glory. Guys, the world is full of evil. And we can look all around us and see things that will keep us up at night. 
I mean, the suffering of this world, even of our own lives, can be so confusing to us. It raises questions, for sure. Christians are increasingly being marginalized in our culture and all around us. The world is much worse for our brothers and sisters. But, but despite all of this, what Nahum does for us is fortify our faith. We don't have to abandon God here. We don't have to get mad at God like he doesn't care. Clearly, he does. And he's going to do something about it. Which means if we're not trusting in him, we should frighten we should be frightened by the coming judgment. We should have a healthy fear of God. Because if we just live our lives as, as if it's always going to be this way, then we'll be surprised just like the people of Nineveh. Just like people in Noah's day. That's literally what Jesus says the final day will be like. It, it, it'll happen when life seems very normal. Uh, people will be doing business, getting married, Life's just carrying on as normal, and then the end will come. You see, part of Satan's great deception is to have you think of God's love in such a way that it leaves no room for repentance, but plenty of room for complacency. He's fine with us living in this world like a frog in a kettle. Though there's plenty of evidence of God's coming judgment all around us, we don't sense it or move away from it. So praise God for previews of judgment in history like we have recorded for us in Nahum. Or praise God for consequences for sin and evil in our daily lives. Ones that we actually feel. Because otherwise, we will live like the mighty Assyrians in Nineveh. And we will reject God. And we will go on living, seeking our joy and pleasure in this world, and be offended that God would have a problem with it. Friends, don't assume things about a holy God based on the way that you feel about sin. And don't assume things about the coming judgment based on on how good your life is today. Or you'll take his warnings lightly. If you're a Christian, trusting in Christ, you don't have to fear people in power or powerful events. God is coming to make everything in this world right and new, and it's good news for you. But if you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here. But you should not be comfortable with feeling comfortable. If Jesus got up from the dead, then he's coming again. And Nineveh's day really is a preview of the world's day when, it's, when God's judgment will be final. And that brings us to the final reason not to fear our enemies when God is for us and against them. It's the end of God's vengeance. In verses 11 through 13, the end of God's vengeance. Verse 11. Where is the lion's lair or the feeding ground of the young lions? Where the lion and lion is proud and the lion's cub with nothing to frighten them away. The lion mauled whatever its cubs needed and strangled prey for its lionesses. It filled up its dens with the kill and its lairs with mauled prey. Prior to COVID, I was playing in a basketball league down in Warwick. And we were having a great season. We went into the playoffs, number one seed, with just one loss. And then COVID brought it all to a screeching halt. The league was canceled for an entire year. And when we came back for a new season, we never won a game. <laughs> so if COVID could talk, it might taunt us, hey, where'd your game go? What happened to the guys that could run up and down the court so well? These verses are a divine taunt. Assyria, Assyria was once a great lion among the nations, devouring its prey and filling up Nineveh with whatever its people wanted. But where are they now? God's speaking prophetically through Nahum in advance to comfort his people with this truth. The day's coming 
When that evil empire that was so good will be no more. Verse 13, beware, I am against you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will make your chariots go up in smoke, and the sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the sound of your messengers will never be heard again. Verse 13 is the key verse of this chapter, and it's to be read with the key verse of the book from chapter 1. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is fierce in wrath. The Lord takes vengeance against his foes. He is furious with his enemies. Beware, I am against you. The terrors of chapter 2 did in fact come against Nineveh. And the city fell in 612 BC to nothing. It was burned and leveled to the ground with such swiftness that the king was forced into his great palace with his family and they were all consumed completely by the fires. There was nothing left to do to Nineveh. God's vengeance was complete. In fact, it was so complete and so fast that the location of Nineveh was lost for over 2,000 years. It went from being the center of history to being completely forgotten. And we have to wonder, how did that happen? It's hard to comprehend, but that's the judgment of God. Assyria's might was as powerless as the Egyptians were when God rescued his people out of their hands. He's doing it again. This is why this is good news. God's judgment of his enemies is the salvation of his people. And it's complete. You know, the Emancipation Proclamation didn't actually free any slaves in the South. It was the victory of war that did that. So compare verse 13, I am against you, with chapter 1 verse 7. The Lord is good. A stronghold in a day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him. Nahum's a book of comfort because it's a book of God's justice upon his enemies. And God's enemies have always been the enemies of his people. So if God is for us, then who can really be against us? And if God is against you, then what good is an ally? Have you ever wondered what it would be like for God to be against you? Just read Nahum. Now you might be here today and you're thinking, I could never believe in a God like this. And if I could, I wouldn't want to be with him. That's understandable, but that doesn't mean you're right. I think we think that way because we put people at the center of our worldview because we start with ourselves for our understanding of the world. And God's fierce wrath doesn't work for us. But his compassion and grace do. And every day we experience his compassion and gracious love so much so that we come to expect God's grace and demand it. We demand grace. I remember when they first took down uh, the old 195 out here and began selling off the plots of land. And at that time, they could have rightfully decided to, to fence off that land until the new owners were ready to build. But since that takes time, they, they decided to let grass grow on it. They actually kept it mowed, and people started using it for picnics and games. Well, when the owners decided to finally start building, people protested. They literally came out because they were upset that the city would take one of the few open spaces that we had, you know, downtown. People had made it about themselves. And so when the owners were exercising their right to do what they always said they would do and had the right to do, people cried injustice. 
And when a God who's been extremely patient and merciful towards sinners finally shows himself to be both righteous and just, people shake their fist at him and say, you can't possibly be good. But in reality, he's already been so good to you. In fact, God warns us. He's telling us ahead of time of his coming judgment and invites us to run to him for refuge in Christ. He's a merciful God and he receives all who come to him in repentance. If you want proof, just read Jonah. Our English Bibles break up the minor prophets into 12 different books. So Jonah, Micah, Nahum, they're all seen as separate works in our minds. But in the Hebrew Bible, there's one book called the Book of the Twelve. They're meant to be read together. And Jonah was a prophet that God raised up about a hundred years before Nahum to go and preach repentance to Nineveh. Now, Jonah didn't want to go because he had good reason to not like Assyria. And Jonah knew that God was full of mercy and compassion. And if Nineveh repented... God would relent in sending judgment. But God got Jonah's attention. And so Jonah goes and he preaches to Nineveh. And they give up their idols and they repent. And so Jonah's mad at God for his mercy. And the book of Jonah ends with this question from God to Jonah. Should I not care about this great city And all the people and animals in it. God cares about all people. He cares about all the nations. Including Nineveh. And so he sent, he graciously sent one of his prophets to this foreign nation that they might repent. When he didn't have to do that. He would have been just in his judgment of evil without giving them any chances to repent. That's that's not a right that we have before God. But in his amazing grace, he did. Because that's his heart. All throughout Scripture, God is merciful. He is abounding, overflowing with mercy. And now it's possible that Nineveh's repentance about a hundred years before Nahum is what led to their great prosperity and giving up their idols and, and, and coming to the Lord. They, 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 they prospered. And in their prosperity, like people often do, they forgot God. Life got good, they got powerful, and got worse than ever before. All kinds of greed, lust, and idolatry filled their hearts. And that's what led to this brutal conquest of the nations. And this time, unlike all the other books in the Minor Prophets, there's no more chances to repent. The day eventually comes. And it's too late. If you're here today and you're breathing, it's not too late. The very fact that you're in this room hearing God's word is mercy towards you. He's giving all of us a chance to respond to his kindness today and live for him. Everyone should look at Nineveh and not take God's grace for granted. Don't presume that that grace will will be there tomorrow, as if you'll always have a chance to repent. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. And it's possible to so harden your heart in sin that you end up like Esau, who, who sought repentance and couldn't find it. In other words, the next sin that you commit could be the one that God gives you over to. And you never walk away. So if you're here this morning and you're hiding secret sin, unwilling to confess it to anyone else, functionally, just not making a big deal about it, you're literally playing with fire.
You're stoking the wrath of God. Don't be foolish and define an ongoing losing battle with secret sin as a struggle. Jesus says in Luke 13 that we must strive, agonize to enter into his final glory. So we must cut off our hand and pluck out our eye because that's better than losing our whole body in hell. A struggle with sin is an all-out fight with sin. A striving for holiness because without it, no one sees the Lord. So think about the history of Nineveh and persevere in repentance. That's where we get assurance. Assurance comes from repentance today, not yesterday, but today. And so if you're repenting today, then you have all the comfort of Nahum at your fingers. Because you're trusting in the cross. That's why we repent. God's been gracious to us. What happened in Nineveh, the Bible tells us the whole world will experience one day. Revelation 6.15 Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Because the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And the answer for every proud person on that day is the same as it was for Nineveh in 612 BC. No one is able to stand. You see, Assyria is a preview, almost like history's trailer of the coming day of God's wrath. And the whole thing's, the whole picture's coming out on the day that the Father alone knows about and has set. And when it does, Jesus will judge his enemies and save his people. A healthy fear of the Lord will help you flee to Christ for mercy, and you will find it. If you're here today and you haven't done that, we want you to know the mercy that we have known. I am not preaching this. We are not a church who thinks that we're better than anybody else. We know we deserve God's judgment. The book of Nahum isn't an invitation for Christians to get mad at the world. This is not a a justification for us being violent with our enemies. We have no such justification. We were once enemies of God. So Jesus calls us to love as he has loved, to to love our enemies. Vengeance belongs to the Lord alone. Our job is to live at peace with everyone. So if anything, reading Nahum, Christian, should make you more compassionate. Because this is what you once were, an enemy, now a friend. And God did this for you by judging his son. In his gracious love, God takes on flesh, comes in this world, and suffers all kinds of injustice at the hands of evil people. And he doesn't fight back. He doesn't do anything about it the first time, but actually dies for those same people. On the cross, Jesus bears the full wrath of God against his enemies, so that all who trust him become his friends. And that relationship's offered to anyone in here today who will trust him. Do that. There's no greater display of love, justice, or mercy than the cross of Christ. And there's no greater guarantee that he is for us, even in our ongoing struggle with sin. Because at the cross, his wrath was completely poured out. Like at Nineveh, there is nothing left for God to do against our sin. His wrath was exhausted, vengeance completed. So if anyone here feels like God is against them, read Nahum and just know how much you're experiencing kindness today. Certainly Nahum teaches us that Christians aren't immune to suffering in a fallen world. Judah suffers plenty. But if you're in Christ, there's nothing of hell in those sufferings. God is not against you. Our sufferings in this world are temporary. 
you will outlast every trial. And every trial is meant for your good. As John Newton once wrote to a younger pastor in a severe trial, you have received a wound, but faithful is the friend who has wounded you. Every circumstance attending it was adjusted with consummate wisdom. Knives and caustics in the hands of an enemy would be formidable, but we can trust a surgeon to use them. Your wound must be painful for a time, but the Lord Lord will not leave you. He will, if I may so speak, dress your wound till it be effectually healed. Ultimately, God is for his people, and he's restoring their majesty. And he's doing it in Nahum through the judgment of his enemies. And one day that judgment will be complete and usher in the full experience of God's promises, completely fulfilled. This is the end of vengeance. After each person is judged for their works, Revelation 20.14 says that death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire where Satan himself has been cast, along with everyone whose name isn't written in the book of life. And right after that, John sees a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And then he hears a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear away from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. Vengeance completed is salvation completed. What does it mean for God to care? It means he'll do something about evil. It means he will bless his people. We should fear him, not people. We should trust him for our refuge and joy. Let's pray. God, as as sinners this morning, we are so thankful to read Nahum and know that we are covered by the blood of the Lamb. That your grace has been poured out on us. And regardless of the suffering that we see or experience in this world, we have the hope of restoration. We have the hope of being with Christ. And so we pray that he would come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.